Askell Leadership Podcast with Jeff Barton. Hello, welcome to the latest Askell Leadership Podcast, where we begin by talking to Kate Chatwell of Challenge Partners about what peer review looks like and a really robust model, which is holding another person's school essentially accountable, but doing it in a way which is constructive and has professional learning at the heart of it. Next, you hear from Leora Crudis of the Confederation of School Trusts with some really interesting ideas on different forms of leadership that are needed, including a notion of civic leadership and system leadership and the distinction between both of those. Next up is Kieran Gill of The Difference, talking about the importance not just of alternative provision, but of people working in mainstream schools having had experience of AP and how that can enrich their impact, whatever type of school they're then working in. Then there's Margaret Mulholland. She is our newly appointed uh, specialist for inclusion and SEND. Uh, She comes with a very distinguished background in that area and she talks about her views of uh, both SEND but also the work she's doing in the role with Askell. And finally, I caught up at the Ethical Leadership Conference with Sir John Dunford, who has been chairing an independent commission into examination malpractice and talks about some fairly eye-watering examples of what he discovered there and some of the recommendations of that commission. Hope you enjoy it. Kate Chatwall, CEO of Challenge Partners. And tell us what Challenge Partners is. Challenge Partners is an education charity that was established by practitioners to continue the work of the London Challenge. The London Challenge was really successful in driving improvement in London schools through a combination of collaboration and challenge, but those practitioners wanted to scale that up to a national model. Now, it's interesting you say that because the London Challenge was going on when I was a head over in East Anglia, and we used to look from the kind of rural shires thinking, oh, well, it's easy for London, they're getting all this money. Mm. And the money would have been part of it, of course, but there was something else going on. So let's just drill in a little bit to this idea of collaboration and challenge. Um, Could could you just explore what does it mean? What, What does collaboration look like and what's the level of challenge? I think the first thing is that uh, the reason that it really worked in London and what drives effective collaboration and challenge is a owning of the problem collectively. So I think there were a group of practitioners in London at that time who all said, this isn't good enough. Our children aren't getting a good enough deal and we're going to work together to improve it. And that's the starting point for challenge partners as well. And, you know, we are getting a good deal for our children, but we think it could be better. It could be even better. So even if you're already a high-performing school, there are things that you will want to do and can do to get it better. So what we start with is a collective sense of we want to work together to make sure that we can get the best deal for our children. And the way that we'll do that is by being really honest with each other and robust about what is it that we're doing that's working really well, but what are the things that aren't going so well that we need to do better. So when we have a quality assurance review or peer review happening within the Challenge Partners Network, it's not about a a cosy conversation. It's about having courageous conversations in the interests of children that says, look, you know, you've got these really great things going on, but actually those few things aren't as good as they could be and your children aren't getting the deal that they really deserve. But I'm not just going to tell you that and walk away. I'm going to stand with my hand on your shoulder and say, so now what can we do together? How can we work together to make sure that they do get the best deal that they deserve? So it's about that challenge going hand in hand with collaboration and that collective sense of moral purpose and ownership of the problem or the opportunity. I think it's really interesting. We're talking about this in a week that Ofsted has brought a report out 
about stuck schools, which essentially does a kind of analysis of why some schools have not moved beyond requires improvement in all of these years, and we get that. And it, it outlines a number of potential solutions to that, including more inspection, which is, mm. you know, if the answer is more inspection, you're probably asking the wrong question, I think. Um, what's interesting for me listening to you is what you're saying is we probably know what the issues are and we probably have the solution. So let's not look to sanctuary buildings, let's not look to Ofsted. This is about us having the moral purpose to say we will improve the system, isn't it? So if, if therefore I am working with someone else and we're doing peer review, how long are they coming into my school for and what, what, what actually happens? In a Challenge Partners Quality Assurance review, that happens over three days, so it allows some really in-depth uh, exploration of what's going on in the school. We focus the review not broadly on all of the things that you would expect from an Ofsted report. We're really interested in the quality of provision and outcomes for all children, but also, crucially, for disadvantaged children. And that disadvantage can take many forms. It might be children on pupil premium, it might be those with additional needs, Needs, young carers, but we want to make sure that they're getting equally as good, if not a better deal, than all children. And how we get into that is through looking at the documentation, yes, that the school has in terms of its uh, CEF, its school improvement plan, published data, all of those kind of things. But that's just a way into understanding the school, where the real um, evaluation comes is through learning explorations that might take the form of lesson observation, book scrutiny, following around a pupil premium child to see what their experience is like. It might involve a meeting with middle leaders, with governors. But the crucial thing is that all of those activities are conducted in pairs by one of the external peer reviewers working alongside uh, one of the leaders of the school. Because it's really important at the end of this that the school own and recognise the picture of their school that is developed over the course of the review. And what I find really magical when I go is listening to the professional dialogue that happens after each activity. So you might spend 20 minutes observing a lesson, you'll spend at least another 20 talking about what you've seen. So what was good about it? What was really great? What didn't quite work so well? And then working with the other reviewers, building up a picture of, well, are the strengths that we saw consistent across the school? Are the things that weren't so great just to do with that individual teacher or are they also consistent and what therefore needs to happen about that and, and does that synthesize ultimately into a kind of a grade it doesn't. What we do do is offer some uh, peer evaluation estimates. Uh, we talk about wanting to identify leading schools, which for us is the highest performing type of schools. And those are the schools that are doing so well, uh, that have such strong practice that they are already leading other schools with it because they're sharing it widely within the system. And we don't think, uh, by the way, that you should get outstanding in Ofsted terms if you're not doing that because uh, there is that commitment to improving others but uh, yes yeah, so a peer evaluation might say you're really great you're sharing with others let's recognize that um, but those are only evaluation estimates there because schools like to have some sense of where they are it's something that they can give to their governors and use for their internal accountability but that is never published it belongs to the school and actually what we don't want is for these reports to be published because actually schools get the most out of it uh, when it is uh, 
when the report is owned by them and they're able to be really, really open and say, look, we've got a closet full of skeletons over here and we're not quite sure what to do with them. Come and help us. Come and have a look. Give us some other pairs of eyes, some other ideas, uh, and we'll be able to do something to improve that. So that's what we want schools to do, is to feel able to be that open so they get the most out of the review. And that doesn't happen when it feels like an Ofsted, when, it, when you know that the report's going to be published. That's why we think that peer review could never replace Ofsted. It has a place, I think, alongside formal external accountability but can be a real sort of internal driver to the system. That was going to be my last question actually is the long-term trajectory do you think that peer review replaces a kind of external mirror being held up but you, what, you, what you appear to be saying is if this is a self-improving system we ourselves need to improve it but you still have that sense of an external um, validation from an inspectorate? Absolutely. Validation, regulation, all of those things. Um, I th find it interesting that Ofsted talks about one of its objectives being around school improvement and actually you can't mark your own homework. So I think it's really important that they provide, play a really important role in external external regulation and validation of what's going on mm. in schools but that shouldn't become confused with school improvement mm. and I think what peer review can do really powerfully is enable that school improvement to happen between those moments of formal accountability. Dr Kate Chetwell, thank you. Thanks Chair. Leora Credis, I'm the Chief Executive of the Confederation of School Trusts. Uh, that's CST. Tell us, um, what is CST? CST is the national organisation and sector body for academies and multi-academy trusts. And just explain to those people listening to this, which will be ASCL members, what CST is compared to what ASCL is. So CST is the sector body, uh, and the clearest difference that I can articulate is um, the relationship ASCL has with the Association of Colleges, which is the sector body for further education colleges. So uh, if you're a member of the Association of Colleges, it is your college that is the member. So the AOC is not a principal's organisation or a chair's organisation. Likewise, CST is a sector body, so it's the trust that is the member. We are not a CEO's organisation or a chair's organisation. So we're the organisation of organisations, if you like, whereas ASCOL obviously has individuals in, in membership and is a trade union. So in, in no way is CST competing with ASCOL. Um, CST I see as a strong strategic partner um, of, of, of ASCOL. Exactly that. And, and one of the areas that we've got absolutely in common is I think we, we both feel we need to tell a better story, don't we, about what we used to talk about as the MAT system, but which increasingly you're saying, let's stop using the word MAT at all. Let's start talking about trusts. What, just, just explain why we should do that. So uh, there's, um, I, th I think we've lost control of the narrative. I think we've allowed others to dominate the, the narrative about what we are attempting to do in, in our sector. Because multi-academy trusts um, are legally independent of local authorities, there's a narrative that um, multi-academy trusts are somehow the privatisation or the corporatisation of education, when in fact multi-academy trusts are charities that run schools, so set up as education organisations purely for the purpose of running and improving schools. So it is it is unhelpful to use the language of MAT because parents don't understand the language of MAT and if they do, they associate it possibly with the um, unfortunate stories through Panorama. Um, but all parents understand 
the what a school is. So really important that we reclaim the word school and start talking about school trusts. And one of the things you remind me of when you are talking about this is that the idea of groups of schools working in partnership, that, that's not new. There are other parts of the world which are A, high-performing, and B, for which this is the norm, aren't there? That's right. So two of the most liberal nations uh, in the world and two very high-performing jurisdictions um, are, for example, Ontario and uh, the Netherlands. In Ontario, groups of schools uh, work together in school boards. School boards are not part of the municipal authority structure. They are, in fact, their own legal entity. Uh, they are the employer of uh, teachers and leaders, um, and they are led by superintendents that we might compare to the role of the chief executive officer here. So, so the idea that you would set up um, specialist organisations to run and improve schools is, is, not, is not a new idea at all. Let's just talk about the, some ideas around leadership, because I've, I've listened to you uh, this afternoon and I've read uh, a re really interesting paper that you've written, which is identifying three forms of leadership, essentially. It's trust leadership, it's civic leadership, and that's a word you might just unpick for us in a second. Uh, and then it is system leadership. Do you want to just talk us through the core ideas here? Yes, so um, we've just published a paper called Systems of Meaning, where we are trying to uh, make sense of how... Uh, to be a, a, a chief executive or leader of a trust is different from being a traditional head teacher. So uh, there are three nested leadership narratives. The first of those is trust leadership, which is the leadership of an organisation. So typically it's a complex organisation because it's an organisation of more than one school, a group of schools. Really important that we understand the, the, the new knowledge domains. So, so the kinds of things the trust leaders would need to know in order to run successful and effective school trusts. So that's leadership of your organisation. Um, that is necessary but uh, not sufficient. So if we are to create a dynamic system, a system that is outward looking rather than fixed and insular and inward looking, we also need leaders to understand their civic responsibilities. So um, CST's position is that school trusts are a new form of civic structure and therefore the trust leaders are also civic leaders and that they should work with other civic leaders in their locality uh, for greater social and educational good. And who, who might be other civic leaders, just so we can kind of uh, understand the, the kind of people we should work with? So um, that certainly would include local authorities and locally elected politicians um, are the clearest form of civic leader, of yeah. course. Um, but so are NHS trusts, so are leaders of social care, so are the police. Um, so so uh, it's people who have a role in public life um, and who are... Um, leaders of public sector organisations. It's those people that I think we need to work together with, but also with other trusts. Yeah, and that's slightly different from something which I used to talk about quite a lot, which was the idea of community leadership. And you make a distinction between the notion of civic and community leadership. Do you want to just explain that? Yes, I, I, in, in my view, a community leader is somebody who represents a community. It could be somebody even who is elected to represent yeah. a community. So it's a, it's a particular civic designation. Um, I think it's presumptuous perhaps of us to suggest that trust leaders are community leaders because uh, they're not invested or designated with, with that kind of leadership from, from the community. So a civic leader, as distinct from a trust leader, um, works for the greater social 
social good with other civic leaders and also of course works with community leaders but I, I, I think it's quite important to to make that distinction so that we're not saying that we believe somehow we represent uh, we, we represent communities because I'm not sure that's yeah, quite right. Uh, and, and partly because trusts will perhaps be rooted in different communities, you know, the same trust may be working across different, different communities. communities yeah. And then we get to system leadership. Now we, we're used to the phrase system leadership has been around for years. What are you saying about that? So this is a little bit of an unpicking of the phrase as we've understood it previously. Uh, I think the National College originally defined system leadership as leading beyond your school gates. Um, that's 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 a good thing to do, leading beyond your school gates. But I don't think that we can really say that we are system leaders when we lead beyond our school gates. To be a system leader, you need to understand the system that you're operating in, whether that is the local system, the regional system, or indeed the national system. And you need to be prepared to work on rather than just in that system. In other words, to help others to build the local system so that it is delivering for all children, not just the children in that, that your particular organisation serves. Eurocritus, thank you very much. I'm Kieran Gill and I run the charity The Difference. Yeah, just um, remind us what The Difference is. So, The Difference is uh, a teacher training organisation that's raising the status and expertise of working with the most vulnerable learners. And we do that in three ways. Uh, through people, we train senior leaders in schools, mainstream schools and alternative provision schools. Um, through practice, discovering what is the cutting edge of best practice with the most vulnerable children and how we can shift that around the system, help more teachers learn about it. And policy so that's people practice policy what are the school policies the local authority policies the national policies that really hinder or help the most vulnerable children how can we shed light on that and uh, get more common sense policies that will improve outcomes for those children now we talk about the most vulnerable children and so it's an easy phrase and it's a it's a kind of feel-good phrase isn't it mm. but what what does it mean i mean who, who are who are they and what do we know happens to them so that's a good question when i talk about vulnerable children I suppose the truth is they could be anyone, um, but I think specifically about exclusion. And I say, you know, all, any child could become vulnerable to exclusion because the pattern that we see is that children who are excluded are very likely to be suffering from mental health problems. And that could become my child, your child. Um, but the pattern is that actually they're often suffering mental health problems because they've experienced a severe trauma and that disproportionately affects the most... Um, the children who um, come from the lowest income homes, the children who might have interacted with social services. Shocking statistic, you're 20 times more likely to be excluded if you've had a social worker in your life. So think about the kids you might work with who interact with social services and what kind of trauma they might have had. Um, and also, you know, exclusions is, is disproportionately affecting certain ethnic groups, Gypsy Roma Traveller, um, Black Caribbean students nationally are disproportionately affected. So there's all kinds of vulnerabilities that can overlap and for whatever reason mean that a child isn't necessarily having their educational needs met, but also having their safeguarding needs met and their well-being needs met. So children who are most vulnerable are left in, in too many cases in positions where actually there are dangers around them, frankly, aren't there? So we'll, we'll talk in a minute about alternative provision, which we, we know exists, and actually there is a much better story to tell around AP than perhaps we've been telling, so we'll come back mm. to that. But we also know there are children who essentially then just disappear, don't they? Can you, could you say something about that? 
Yeah, absolutely. So I did a big piece of research on permanent exclusions, um, but then discovered that, that was just the tip of the iceberg, that actually there are 50,000 children at the moment in schools for excluded pupils. 50,000 compared with only 8,000 who are permanently excluded. So children are entering this sector in a number of different ways, but colleagues like um, Education Data Lab have found that there are 20,000 children who've disappeared altogether from the school registers. They used to go to a school, and now we can't find them on any of the National Pupil Database records. Um, so increasing numbers of children seem to be disappearing. And who are then vulnerable to exploitation with a criminal exploitation, sexual exploitation? Absolutely. If, if they're not in school, where are they? Yeah, exactly. um, and, and we just don't know. And given the demographics we talked about, interaction with social services, suffering mental health problems, for those children not to be in the care of adults in a school um, and learning actually means that they are really vulnerable to being exploited by others. Now, you know a lot about alternative provision. I remember sitting through head teacher meetings when I was a head all those years, and we would always be saying there needs to be more alternative provision. But you made a point this morning, which is, whilst we say that, we didn't always know what was happening within alternative provision. We know from Ofsted that alternative provision in this country is of high quality, generally. Um, t tell us, what, what should we be doing to learn more about AP? Great question. So you're right, it's kind of been the Cinderella of our school system. Lots of teachers and heads have sometimes never even visited a people referral unit at all. And what the difference is trying to do is celebrate these schools and say, actually, this should be seen as the pinnacle of the profession, you know, the brain surgery of teaching. Because as we talked about, a really complex demographic of students. So to make sure that those children thrive, are safe and successful in school is an even more complex job um, than many other practitioners. Um, so I think what we can do is we can ask questions. We can ask where are the students who've left our roles or are not on our registers anymore. Um, we can understand more as teachers about what the local offer is for young people who've been excluded from school and we can also go and visit a people referral unit the difference runs trips to people referral units and you can find out some something about that from our mailing list it's called four bullet friday if you go to www.the-difference.com you can find it um, but we really want to build a new generation of leaders who've been through people referral units they understand the reality for those most complex students and how to get the best outcomes with them and we do that through our difference leaders program we're looking for middle leaders, early career senior leaders um, with fantastic skills to take those for two years to a people referral unit in a senior leadership post and learn as much as they can about that uh, part of the school sector before returning to mainstream, upskilled with that knowledge on their way to headship so that when they're a head teacher they know intimately what's out there for the most vulnerable children and how to get the best out of them. What I love about this is you're not just kind of talking about inclusion and vulnerability, you're then putting together a plan whereby leaders can go and immerse themselves in that and then either, either stay in the AP sector or move back into a mainstream school with it. So it's that move from uh, policy into practice, which I like about that. I'm glad to hear that, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, we're really clear that the difference is not the panacea. No. This is a very complex problem and it requires difficult solutions and lots of our teachers are doing fantastic work but under the radar, yeah. really not celebrated for that work. So what the difference is trying to do is uncover best practice in mainstream, best practice in people referral units and to just celebrate it and share it to a wider audience um, so that more people can learn from it and, and change their own practice. And one of the ways we do that, by the way, I should say, Jeff, is through our Include Ed conference, which happens um, in the autumn term just after half-term holidays. So next year it'll be the 31st of October and we love to see ASCO members there. Great. Kieran Gill, thank you. Thank you.
I'm Margaret Mulholland. I'm the SEN and Inclusion Specialist for ASCO. Just remind us, Margaret, what you were doing just prior to that. Um, I was working in a large special school in Camden, um, 240 pupils, and uh, it's called Swiss Cottage School, but as a teaching school director. So very much working with the expertise at Swiss Cottage and the schools who were part of their alliance, both mainstream and special. And one of my great passions is to bring those two worlds together, if you like, those two sectors working not in tandem, but in, in an integrated fashion. Yeah. I always remember you saying, actually, um, uh, before you got this role, that if you get it right for those children who are at risk of exclusion or those children with learning difficulties, and so, it kind of follows from that. You'll get it right for other people. That's, that's the philosophy, isn't it? It is. And I think um, I've thought about that more since we first discussed it. And I do this monthly column in the TES magazine. And it's really helpful because it makes you zoom in, you know, to certain concepts. And this idea of complexity, both of pupils and of classrooms, having complex classrooms with increasingly complex students within them. And I don't mean academically complex, I mean holistically complex. Yeah. Um, I think what we need to do is think more in terms of CPD and teacher training about how we engage with complexity and how that builds expertise. Because the model we have of expertise sometimes is this sort of David Berliner model, which is more of a linear process. You know, you start as a novice and you work towards expertise. Well, of course, that's, that is an overriding picture. But actually, if you start with complex problem solving, with teachers, really engaging in what their prior knowledge is and helping them to look at the process of problem solving as part of that very genuine expertise. I think we stop thinking about diagnosis of SEND. You know, what do you know about autism? What do you know about cerebral palsy? And you say, what do you know about problem solving? What, about, what do you know about young people? How have you learned more about this young person um, in, in defining what it is that's challenging them, but also in actually recognising that with the strengths they demonstrate, there are ways into the curriculum. And I think teaching and learning should be the overriding focus that we have for, for children with special educational needs. But actually it's that, you know, it's the bottom of the iceberg, isn't it? That actually it's all that they bring. The more expert we become in that, the more readily we can access the teaching and learning. And there's a concept, I've only just learnt about this, through um, somebody from Canada, I think she is, Shelley Moore. Um, but she uses the concept of 7-Eleven, 10-pill bowling, that actually if you aim for the two outside pins, they're the most difficult, but actually if you aim for them, you get everybody. <laughs> now That's that great. is the complex. Yeah. yeah, that is the message I think we need to develop within our continuous professional learning. I, I, I love all of that because it kind of demystifies an area that teachers worry about and they think, you know, what yeah. do I know about autism? Yeah. And it says actually, it, it's not about that. It's about how you help children to learn. Yeah. But the, the corollary of that is it stops the labeling culture of, of yeah. a child being defined by a condition, yes. as it were. And so I love the kind of inclusivity of that. And it's a reminder that underneath everything we do is about developing adults to work with children, isn't it? It is. And you use the term inclusivity rather than inclusion. And I think that's important mm. because I think when we think of inclusion, we think of something physical. You know, this child is included in this classroom 
is part of the PE lesson is that's the wrong way to frame that discussion. Mm. It's the inclusivity. How do they feel? How do they engage? What is the level of engagement that they that is afforded to them? And how can we adjust that so it's maximised? Margaret Mulholland, thank you. Thank you. Uh, John Dunford, uh, Chair of the Independent Commission on Examination Malpractice. Could you tell us a little bit about the origins of the uh, Commission on Malpractice? Because it, it, is it in response to lots and lots of malpractice going on? Uh, no, it isn't. One of the underlying messages of the report is that the detected malpractice by students and staff and, and exam centres is, is very low, but it's disproportionately damaging when it occurs. And so the Joint Council for Qualifications wanting to keep a lid on this and, and reduce malpractice wherever possible and mindfully the effects of, and mindful of the effects of new technology and the possibilities of technology always keeping ahead of, of, of um, centres and authorities uh, decided to set up the commission to see if they could um, uh, um, um, reduce the amount of uh, malpractice but also more, even more importantly than that um, make recommendations that would help centres to prevent malpractice in the first place. When you say um, malpractice is damaging, just, just talk through the, the ways in which it can be damaging. Um, ASCO members who've had um, experience of dealing with malpractice will know that it can have a, a devastating effect on, on the school, um, not just simply in the school's relationship with the awarding organisations, but in the school's reputation with parents and so on. So it's really important that schools deal and are helped to deal uh, really well with, with examination malpractice. And you only have to see examples um, of malpractice that have happened in recent years. And there was one in, in some major independent schools that finished up on the front page of yeah. the Times uh, almost every day for 10 days. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And that kind of thing gives the public the impression exactly. that exam malpractice is much, much wider than it is. Yes. The, the, in, in terms of students, it's 0.02%. Yeah. It's a really tiny proportion. So let's let's go back to the beginning. So what was the, the, the original brief? What, what was it you were being asked to do? And, and how did you approach it? Who did you involve? We had a very wide-ranging uh, brief to uh, examine malpractice, to look at the data, and to make recommendations about how it could be prevented and, and reduced. And we took that brief um, really as, as broadly as we could. And we really looked at the whole exam system and in some ways I think went beyond our, our brief. And I, I chaired the commission, but I was helped by people from, um, from ASCOL and from um, the independent sector. Uh, from higher education. We had the expert on malpractice and plagiarism from the <laughs> higher education sector. Uh, the uh, further education sector from, from the Association of Colleges, uh, from the teachers from the National Education Union. Um, the exams officers, which is a wonderful training organisation for exams officers in school, the exams office it's called. Uh, and finally the Chartered Institute of Education Assessors. We also had as observers to the meetings of the Commission all four regulators, Ofqual from England, right. Qualifications Wales, um, SQA from Scotland and CCEA from Northern Ireland. And interestingly, Ofsted and also the International Baccalaureate asked if they could be observers. 
Uh, and yeah. so we had quite a, uh, a really knowledgeable group of people in the room. Now, when people listen to the word malpractice, they, those people who work in schools, I, I, I guess what they'll be thinking is that some of this will be uh, stupid errors. For example, you know, somebody, somebody's supposed to be giving some exam papers out, they've forgotten something, they leave the exam papers in the room, turn their back, and someone might have cheated. To much more extreme things. What, what kind of things were, were surprising to you that you unearthed? Um, the extent to which um, the possession of a mobile phone formed such a high proportion of student malpractice. Really? And, and even with all the warnings that students must get, um, uh, still something like 64% of student malpractice of taking the wrong things into an exam room was, um, uh, was a mobile phone. And um, I think the other thing that I was um, uh, really um, uh, concerned about was the, uh, the kind of technology that's available now. I mean, if you go on Amazon and you can see on Amazon, and I'm quoting um, uh, a watch that is for sale on Amazon, this watch is specifically designed for cheating on exams with a special programmed software. It has an emergency button so when you press it the watch's screen display changes from text to a regular clock and blocks all other buttons. So of course the invigilator can't see that it's a smart watch. So we, we looked at this in some detail and, and our headline recommendation which kind of got into all the newspapers the day after we published uh, was that all watches should be banned. And irrespective of whether um, uh, JCQ introduces this ban for the 2020 series of exams and it may well be that some ban comes in later than that, my advice to schools and colleges would be um, uh, use your powers to ban all watches from exam rooms except for young people who have some special need yeah, right. uh, that they would be disadvantaged in their exams. Um, just, uh, sorry, can I yeah. just mention another yeah. thing that, uh, that greatly surprised me uh, was, the, uh, was the numbers of um, access arrangements and special considerations. And um, in the end, this proved to be such a difficult area that we've suggested to JCQ they really need to do some more research on that. But we're talking about nearly 400,000 access arrangements. This is papers, of course, not people. Um, yes, and okay. nearly 600,000 special considerations. Now, those numbers are quite astonishing. Wow. And research that's been done on this, um, which obviously we looked into and we used in, in depth, was that resource-rich schools have much higher numbers of these than resource-poor schools. And this introduces a real kind of ethical dilemma here. Definitely. And, and, and um, part of the reason that we made um, an ethical approach the absolute centre of our recommendations. This is really the only way in which... Because there's a high trust. You know, we talk about a high-stakes, low-trust uh, system of accountability. Actually, there's a high degree of trust in schools and colleges yes, for um, uh, putting on exams in yeah. an honest way. Yeah, yeah. And the only way to do that with both staff and students, it seems to me, is to have a really ethical approach. And this is where the, um, the Ethical Leadership Commission's work, which we've absolutely quoted from page one in the report, yeah, right, yeah. Uh, came, in, uh, came in so useful for us. Could you just give us a flavour of the recommendations from there? 
Um, the recommendation about watches I have, uh, I have mentioned. Uh, we want much clearer regulations, much simpler to navigate. JCQ um, regulations at the moment are a mess and, and they are already starting now to sort those out, to make them searchable, which they've never been in the past. <laughs> oh yes, I mean the, the, um, uh, the work of an exams officer is very difficult given the, the complexity of the regulations yeah. and the difficulty of finding your way around them. So clearer regulations, much simpler to navigate was the first one. We want a single definition of malpractice. Surprisingly, there are lots of different definitions of malpractice. And we suggest actually that the word maladministration should be kind of not used right, and it should okay. be absorbed within uh, a wider definition of malpractice. We want to see better data especially on access arrangements and indeed on vocational awards because malpractice in vocational awards the data is much 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 weaker than it is on general qualifications uh, and um, particularly for the small training centres on vocational awards we want to see a strengthened centre inspection system and we also want to see um, uh, technology uh, not as something that you sit back and think oh isn't it advancing well and um, aren't students clever in the way that they cheat with technology but actually use technology to combat abuse uh, okay. and that requires not just individual schools but the whole system oh, operating in a different way and and this has raised questions for all members of the Commission that you yourself Jeff, Jeff raised which is about the complexity of the exam system as a whole Absolutely. and the thought that exams the young people are taking now are pretty much exactly the same in, in, in style as the exams that I took at school many, many, many years ago. And it really is time the system changed. And if it did change, particularly at GCSE, then the, the prevention of malpractice could be built in much better Absolutely. to the exam system. So John Lopper, thank you. It's a pleasure. The Ascol Leadership Podcast with Jeff Barton.